0: This audio is from the Axis Church and is part of our sermon series, The Final Days of Jesus, Selections from the Gospel of Matthew. For more information about Jesus or the Axis Vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Matthew chapter 23. And just to give you some context, if you haven't been with us, essentially starting in chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel... Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And Matthew spends, Matthew's the the human author of this book, he spends about 25% of his gospel, of this letter, teaching the church about the final week of Jesus' life. And this week is not just the climax of Matthew's gospel or the climax of Jesus' life, but it is essentially the climax of history because it's going to change history, both past and future. And one of Matthew's primary reasons for writing this this gospel is that he wants us to be clear that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior for whom the world has been waiting. And in the past weeks leading up to our text today, we've seen that the year is 33 A.D., That this week in the story is Passover week, which is the most significant festival and celebration in the life of the Jews. And so thousands of Jews would pilgrim to Jerusalem for this week to basically remember God's deliverance of his people at the Exodus. And there's been talk that this Jesus of Nazareth is maybe the Messiah the one who would come and crush the enemies of the Jews and who would establish his kingdom and send out these God-hating Gentiles. And in the past few chapters, we've seen Jesus ride into this rented donkey and this colt into Jerusalem, and the people are acclaiming are him to be the Messiah. And he had entered, he'd come into Jerusalem and he had entered into the temple And he had ran out the merchants and the customers because people were essentially profiting from the worship of God during this week. And he's been telling the the religious elite, the leaders of the day, that they are not going to enter the kingdom. But rather, the people who will enter the kingdom are, for example, tax collectors and prostitutes, the most hated and most despised sinners of the day. And so obviously the leaders began to question Jesus' authority, like, who in the world do you think you are to run us out of God's temple? And last week we saw this, this interaction between Jesus and the leaders, and they were attempting to trap Jesus with a series of questions. And during this discussion, Jesus calls the leaders hypocrites, which is really getting to the point of Jesus' rebuke of them. And this is a word that we're going to hear many times this morning in Matthew chapter 23. And so essentially Jesus is borrowing a term from culture. He's borrowing a term from the theater plays of the day, because this this word was used of those actors in these plays. And he, he borrows this term to essentially unveil the false religion of These Jewish leaders. He's pretty much telling them that you are profiting from performing and from making a living for your performance and you're pretending, just like they do in the theater. You are a paid pretender, not a genuine worshiper of God. And so, since the leaders weren't able to trap Jesus with their questions, Matthew at the end of chapter 22, he makes note that they didn't ask him any more questions. So you'd think it might be over, but instead, Jesus basically launches a full-fledged critique and rebuke of these religious leaders of the day. And this chapter includes some of the most offensive words that Jesus ever spoke. It's probably going to maybe challenge who you think Jesus is. And what is at stake is the contrast between these new values of the kingdom that he is establishing and a superficial approach to religion. Jesus will not ally himself with the current leadership of the day. Rather, he has come to overthrow that leadership and their authority and to replace it with his own. And so it seems that either Jesus will assume power and authority or he will face death at the hands of these leaders. Now the target of, of Jesus' rebuke in chapter 23 specifically, it says that he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and so it's helpful for us to know who these people are. Essentially, the scribes were the teachers of the law. They were the paid professional interpreters of the scriptures and of the rabbis and the traditions of the rabbis. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees were this religious party to which most of the scribes belonged and they were men who devoted themselves to the intense and detailed and meticulous observance of the old testament scriptures and the traditions of the rabbis which was included over 600 additional rules and regulations for the people and literally the pharisee they were they were literally the separated ones because of their zealous quest to obey the law and the traditions And we also must remember that these leaders, scribes and the Pharisees, were among the most highly regarded religious leaders of the day. They were sincere and devout in in the things of the law and in their devotion to the law. They believed firmly in what they were doing. They were zealous about what they believed. And everyone else around them saw this as well. They thought that they were on God's team. And yet... Jesus rebukes them. And it's for this reason this morning that this chapter offers us a serious caution and a warning this morning. This text is is difficult not because of necessarily it's hard to understand, but it's difficult because it's extremely penetrating and extremely convicting because Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of the most highly regarded religious leaders. At his time. And I think if we listen and learn from Jesus this morning, we're probably going to feel areas of our own hearts exposed. These men believed that they were honoring God, and yet Jesus pronounces condemnation and judgment upon them. So this should sober us as we hear Jesus' words in the text. So let's take a look at what Jesus says. In this chapter, starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 23, and verse 1 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, this is a place of authority from which the scribes and the Pharisees would teach. And so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but they do not practice. Literally, in the original, this is like they're speaking, but they're not doing. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Jesus warns the crowd, and he warns his disciples of these religious leaders. He says that they have the authority of Scripture. They sit on Moses' seat. And so, insofar as they preach and teach what Moses taught us, you should obey them. You should observe what they're teaching. But he says, don't follow their example. They themselves are hypocrites and inconsistent because they don't even do what they tell others to do. They pile up heavy burdens, laws, and rules but they don't carry the burdens themselves. They preach obedience to the people, but they themselves don't shepherd them into obedience. And I think immediately we must ask ourselves, is there a consistency between what we say and what we believe and what we actually do? As a parent, as an employee, as a boss, as a student, as a friend, as a spouse, Where where do we expect of others what we ourselves are not doing? Do do what I say, not what I do, is not theology from Jesus. It's not Christian living as taught by Jesus. Paul was able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So these leaders are, are preaching... A lot of things, a lot of rules, but they're not practicing them, Jesus says. This one, verse 5, he says, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. So whatever they are practicing, they're actually doing this so that you would see them do it. It's not for the honor of God. For they make their phylacteries broad. And what What that means is these were small pouches or maybe even wooden boxes that they would fasten to their arm or fasten to their forehead to remember, so zealous to remember the law. And their fringes, they make them long. This is also prescribed in the Old Testament. And and then they love the place of honor at feast and they love the best seats in the synagogues and they love the greetings in the marketplaces and they love being called rabbi by others. Jesus is saying that all of their piety, all of their religion was for show, to be noticed, to gain the applause of man. Their dress, their position, their titles, it all proves that they love to be seen by men for being religious. Professional pretenders. Pretenders. And so instead of drawing attention to God, they're drawing attention to themselves. And let us not pretend that we are much different than this, are we? In what areas and in what ways are you seeking the approval of man? And more specifically, do do you want people to think that you are more religious and more spiritual than you really are? Maybe are you serving on Sunday mornings at the Axis? Are you speaking up in community group with elongated spiritual answers? Maybe even praying for people with a heart motive to be seen by others and so that somebody would recognize you and applaud you. Do you desperately desire the honor from your brothers and sisters in the church for your religious performance? If we are not content with the approval of God that we have in Jesus, we will all seek it somewhere else. But Jesus calls his disciples to something different. In verse 8, Jesus says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and and you are all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Kingdom citizens, Jesus' disciples, his people, will exhibit a reversal of these worldly attitudes. They are to be marked by humility, and not pride service rather than hypocrisy of, of doing things to be seen by man. You see, these religious leaders were using their power and their authority and their title, and they were exerting themselves in their superiority over other people. They were making themselves the center of attention. And Jesus here is not, he's not condemning having teachers. He's not condemning um, earthly fathers, for example, obviously. We know that he calls for some to have authority in this life over other people. And he's later going to say, I'm going to send you scribes and prophets and, and wise men. And so he's not even denouncing spiritual leadership in the church. But he is rebuking these men for exerting their authority and using it for their own good and to make themselves the center of all things and again pride if you didn't know pride is easy to come by and so ask yourself do i delight in receiving honor over other people do i find comfort when i realize that i'm in a better position than the person that i'm speaking with do i can feel condemned when i tell others what i do but it's not really what i that's not what I'm going to be doing like it's just what, kind of what I'm doing right now Do, am I prone to exalt myself over other people? Do I compare myself with other people, measuring my spirituality even against their level of spirituality so that I can feel good about obeying and how much I'm following the law and the commandments of jesus I mean, it's so easy? Do do I feel good enough when others notice me for my religious performance and tell me how great of a job that I'm doing? C.S. Lewis says, pride is essentially competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man." It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Family, we are prone to compete with one another. But Jesus says here that we are all brothers. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and so that means that we are equal before God through Christ. And so the question is, are we humbly serving others around us or are we competing with them? Are we centered on ourselves and, or are we seeking to lay down our rights and to lay down our lives for the good of our brothers and sisters around us? Are we seeking to outdo one another in showing honor instead of seeking honor for ourselves? May God show us our pride, and may He lead us to repentance and lead us to humble service. Now, starting in verse 13, Jesus basically changes the direction of His conversation, and He now begins to speak directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. And what He says is quite shocking. I'm sure the crowd was completely shocked at what Jesus is about to say here. The following verses contain seven woes to these leaders. Now, this isn't something we typically say today. Um, You may start using it after this sermon, but woe to you is a way of pronouncing judgment and condemnation on another person. This is a way of saying you are guilty and judgment is coming. So we're going we're gonna to deal with these first six woes in, in pairs of two because the themes of each go together. And so as we look in verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These two woes condemn the leaders for hindering others and for hindering themselves even from entering the kingdom of God. And notice here that these men are willing to travel across sea and land to make a single convert, to make a single convert to the religion of performance as a way to God. And yet in the process, they are condemning themselves and they are condemning others and shutting the kingdom of God in people's faces. And their converts are worse off than when before they became converts, because they're more proud and legalistic and blind than the Pharisees themselves. You see, these leaders were preaching a false hope with sincere hearts. We underestimate the value and the the power of influence, and so I think we must ask ourselves, what is what we're teaching others whether through word or through action, is it hindering people from entering the kingdom? Are we making disciples of something other than Jesus? We talked about this some last week, how we can make so many things bigger than what Jesus calls us to. We can focus our lives on so many different things. and what you're essentially doing when you talk of these things consistently and constantly and you tell your friends, you're making a disciple. You're teaching somebody what you value is and what you think is important. So for example, are your social media posts helping people get to the kingdom? Is the gospel that you preach in line with the gospel of the Bible? The New Testament consistently calls us to guard the gospel and to watch our lives because we can so easily lose both. We must Pray for grace to always be leading people to the real Jesus. Two more woes appear in verses 16 through 24. Jesus says, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by, every, by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, namely God. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. These leaders were using religious rules and exceptions to justify false oaths. They were distinguishing oaths made by the temple and those made by the the gift of the temple, or the the gold of the temple, rather, and those made by the altar and those made by the gift on the altar. In other words, they were focusing on misguided superficial distinctions that were man-made distinctions. And essentially, these rules allowed men to keep their promises only under certain circumstances. And you had to make sure that you kind of knew the loophole to get out of what you had just said. They were simply justifying sin, the sin of lying and being unfaithful to their word. And we've already seen Jesus talk about this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus says God owns everything by which you try to swear. And so any oath, any word that you speak makes you accountable to God. We've also seen in Matthew, Jesus say that we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. So stop focusing, Jesus says, on the minor details while neglecting obedience, which is why this is paired with the next following verses. In verse 23, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. People who go to Whole Foods actually know what that means. (laughs) You've, You've... You tithe all of these things, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. They focus on keeping their legalistic traditions but they neglect what is truly important. They neglect what is at the heart of obedience and at the heart of what God requires of His people. You see, their tithing, their giving was very convenient. Do we conveniently obey certain commands while neglecting the weightier, more costly commands? I mean these men were, were tithing down to the very seed. Of not just what they what they harvested, but also what they bought, just in case the next man didn't tithe. Like we want to make sure that we're we're in line. But they Jesus says you're neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you read the prophets, if you read Micah and Nahum and Isaiah and so on, And then you see Jesus here. They consistently condemn the Jewish people for failing to love and to show mercy to the weak and to show justice to the poor and the needy. In a world with so much brokenness and so much poverty and need and disease and injustice, it, it really makes very little sense to spend our lives in our pride acting as if we're spiritual because we obey very convenient commands that are easy for us while neglecting to show justice and to show mercy and to show faithfulness and to, to love our neighbor as ourself. To, for, for neglecting to show justice and mercy in our own city or even across the globe. Jesus didn't say, notice, to ignore the other things. He just said that you can't do certain commands at the expense of obeying other commands. And So the question is whether we are going to be willing to deny ourselves and die to self and to comfort and to, for convenience and to live out the mercy and justice and faithfulness of God. Don't find contentment and satisfaction in half-hearted religion that fails to love your neighbor as yourself. Love and mercy and justice are costly. But God is not honored, nor is he shown to be glorious, nor is the gospel made big in any way when we choose to obey only what is convenient. Don't get lost in the details, so lost in the details that you ignore and miss the weightier and most important matters in the Bible. These men are supposed to be teachers of the law, and they're missing the big point of what Jesus calls them to. May we be a people who embrace and live out the full counsel of God, especially here what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. Now, the the next two woes get to the heart of their hypocrisy. Jesus says in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. In other words, there are a lot of debates during this day of what is clean and unclean. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So notice that you can tithe everything that you receive or buy and still be full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate and that the outside may also be clean. Jesus says you are essentially so busy worrying about external purity and outward cleanliness, but you don't consider the impurity of your own heart. They were oblivious to the internal condition of their soul. They obeyed God with their mouths, but their hearts were far from him. I think it's interesting that and teaches us something that Jesus uses greed and self-indulgence to say, this proves that your heart is corrupt. All through Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus teaching that the heart is what matters. He goes back to the heart over and over. And and when he speaks about God, serving God or money, Jesus said where your heart is, it's where you're going to find your true treasure. It's where you're going to find your affections. We know that if the heart is corrupt, then the fruit of our lives will also be corrupt. So very simply, purity always begins in the heart. These leaders are concerned with just simply living outwardly clean and not considering the condition of their souls. Jesus goes on in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Tombs in Jesus' day can be beautiful on the outside. We'll read that they decorate the tombs of of those who had gone before them, and they were typically whitewashed in order to let those who pass by know that this is a tomb. Because if you were to make contact with that, you would be considered unclean because of what was inside the tomb. People think Jesus says that you're you're righteous and beautiful, but inwardly you are full of self-indulgent. Sin, greed, hypocrisy, lawlessness. You appear righteous. Are we so focused on playing the part and appearing righteous to other people, seeming like we have it all together, that that we fail to deal with the idolatry of our own heart? Are we we failing to deal with the sinfulness of our soul? Is your religion all about externals, all about conforming to rules, all about performing obedience? Friends, that is a burdensome religion. In the end, it is going to crush you. We need to be reminded that religion and religious performance can be a subtly dangerous cover up for spiritual inward deadness. We we are in one of the most churched cities in America, and you can go to church, you can serve the church, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can go to community group, you can be faithful, you can be going to seminary, you can become a pastor, you can become a church staff member, and you can completely miss it all together. and if we are not careful we will use religion and religious performance to cover up the curse of sin that lies in the depths of who we are so we must ask ourselves is is there life inside of me do do others affirm your inward transformation is is my heart being so transformed that, I, that my affection for Christ is above everything else? Is there love and affection for Christ in our obedience? Is holiness and godliness being cultivated within our hearts? Am I fighting sin and fighting for obedience to Jesus? The scribes and the Pharisees would have to answer no to these questions, and may it not be so of us. Jesus goes to the heart. And then in this last woe, this serves really as the culmination, as the conclusion to Jesus' words. He says in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers we would not have taken part with him in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, they proudly believed that they would have never been part of persecuting and murdering the prophets sent to God's people by him. And yet this is exactly what Jesus says they're going to do. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Do what you're going to do. You serpents, you brood of vipers, you sons of Satan, essentially, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. This is exactly what happened in the book of Acts. This is exactly the history of the early church. Verse 35, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, which is the first murder in the Bible, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. You, You think that you're better than your forefathers, and yet you're going to do all that they did and more. You're going to murder the Messiah and his people of all the inconsistencies and hypocrisy of these leaders, the culmination is that they who should know the Messiah when they see him are going to be the ones to crucify him. And we too, in our sin, in our hardness of heart, would crucify him. And so we we come to this frightening conclusion that we are they apart from grace. Grace. And to think anything different is to flatter ourselves in the same way that these scribes and Pharisees did. We wouldn't have have taken part in that. John Stott, a pastor theologian, says, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. we are rebels at heart. We deserve the full wrath of God because we too have spurned and rejected the Messiah, the Son of God. We have turned away from Him. And if we persist in our rejection while playing churchianity games, Jesus says we will receive the condemnation that we ourselves have earned. And yet there is hope in Jesus' words at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 37. While these are most, some of the most intense words Jesus has ever spoken, he says at the end, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you and your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings. In other words, for comfort, for rest, for protection. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Friends, salvation is possible for us, sinners. Jesus called out to those who were not just rejecting him in this moment, but who were about to crucify him How long will you continue in your unbelief? How long will you continue in your sin? Hear the merciful and patient pleas of the Son of God to you and to me this morning. Salvation is possible because Jesus would soon go to the cross. He would soon bear the sin and the wrath that we deserve. And so salvation is possible for those who humbly repent and trust him, who fall on their face and cry out for mercy We can stop playing church and we can stop playing games this morning. And those areas of your heart where you haven't submitted to Jesus, you can repent this morning and receive grace and mercy. And there is joy and freedom in that. And if you're here this morning and maybe you've said no to Jesus because you think that all he does is add a bunch of rules and makes your life hard and puts burdens on you, then you have said no to the wrong Jesus. That's not the Jesus that we see. Jesus here is is calling out to his people, come to me. And he's going to do something in the coming week that will take care of all of our rejection and not coming to him. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Sounds like the followers of the Pharisees and the scribes and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites the burdened and the weary, and be assured that Jesus is pleading with us this morning to even come to him now. And friends, Jesus had in his perfect life and death and resurrection has won. He has conquered your sin. He has conquered death. And he's coming again for those who humble themselves and repent and trust in him. So let us humbly call out for mercy. Let us humble ourselves in submission to him and to his word and live lives that proclaim the mercy that we have received in the gospel. And the truth is, there are billions of people who have not heard of such mercy. So let us lay down our rights. Let us lay down our convenience and give our lives to proclaiming the compassion of Jesus to sinners. There are people worshiping false gods who believe that they are honoring God. There are people across the street from your home who don't believe this Jesus. Who are eternally hopeless without him? Church, we have the gospel of mercy and grace, and we, because of His mercy and grace to us, have been able to respond to it, and so let us go proclaiming it. Jesus deserves so much more than our outward religion and performance. He deserves our lives. And I know how easy it is in a sermon like this to be introspective and add the burden of guilt and shame upon ourselves, because we see that we're not living up to the standards of the Bible. And the truth is, we aren't. None of us are. And there is grace and mercy in the gospel this morning. And so every week, we come together as a family of disciples, as a family of Jesus followers, and as a family of Hypocrites who need the mercy of Jesus, and we remember that mercy. We remember that Jesus has performed perfectly in our place, and that he truly, perfectly humbled himself to the point of death so that we would not have to experience that ourselves. So this morning, as we partake in communion, we'll have servers on both sides and stations in the back. And as you come forward and take a piece of the bread, the broken bread that reminds us of the broken body of Jesus on our behalf, and we'll dip it in the juice of the wine, which reminds us and points us to the the shed blood of Christ on our behalf because of our sin that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we come this morning and we remember Jesus. And we remember that it is by grace that we are accepted and loved and forgiven Friends, family, leave your guilt and your shame at the cross because that is where Jesus bore it. He was raised three days later proving that his sacrifice for your sin was accepted. So this morning as we come, we come celebrating, we come rejoicing because we don't have to pretend to be righteous anymore. Coming forward and partaking of communion is saying that I am not righteous in and of myself. But thank you, Jesus, that you have given me a righteousness that enables me to stand before God and for him to look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So I encourage you this morning to be encouraged by the mercy of Jesus and to come this morning when you're ready and to partake of communion and to know that your sins have been forgiven. Let me pray for us. Father, we are a broken and sinful and rebellious people. Lord, we know that left to ourselves, there's no reason we would ever come to you. There's no reason we would ever cry out for mercy. There's no reason that in us that would cause you to send your son for us to pay for our sin to bear your wrath and yet you did not spare your own son for us you gave him up for us and father if we were to get just a glimpse of how wicked and how perverse and evil our hearts are Father we would there's simply not words to describe our sinfulness there's not a way for us to understand what you have saved us from but Lord we thank you that, that Jesus has come that he has done it for us that he has lived the life that we should have lived and Lord we pray this morning that you would encourage our hearts with your mercy, Lord, that, that you would spur us to put down the facade of righteousness, that we would stop pretending because you know our hearts. And yet you love us and you have gave your son for us and have demonstrated your love for us in the cross. And so I pray that as we come forward, as we partake communion, that you would encourage us, that you would build our faith through the gospel this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray.